What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Communion, I'm your host, David Anders. Uh, the number to be on the show is 1-833-288-EWTN, 1-833-288-3986. I'll be joined in just a minute by my facilitator, Tom Price, but he has been rudely kicked out of his chair. By, by I am not Tom Price. <laughs> by someone other than Tom Price. Dr. Ray, how you I'm making a point here. I want to make a point. I had a lady email me. She said, Dr. Ray, can you handle this question, or should I call Dr. Anders? I said, hey, I can handle this. So I'm going to tell you the question. Okay. Then I'm going to handle it. And if you think it needs correction, you step in. Lay it on me. All right. The lady said, why is the papacy in Rome? All right. So here's my answer that I gave her. Well... It's a really, it's a nice city. Uh, they they uh, have people there that eat well. Um, and uh, one of the reasons it's in Rome is because uh, that's in Italy. And uh, Italy is a place where there's a lot of Italians. And uh, at the time of the Roman Empire, they were mostly Catholic because they were Italian. And uh, that's pretty much what I said. So if you think I missed it in any way, you, then feel you know, free you, to correct you, me. You, you, you're making me think of a, of a student I used to have at the University of Iowa. I, I taught uh, religion classes at Iowa, history of Christianity and Judeo-Christian tradition and a few other courses like that when I was a graduate student up there. And I uh, one year I assigned Plato's Republic in the class. <clears throat> and I remember this one kid who wrote a paper, and, and I'm going to summarize his thesis. Plato lived a long time ago. I live today. I don't like I don't like the parallel here. <laughs> and people who live today know more than Plato did. <laughs> Therefore I am right and Plato was wrong. <laughs> that, that was the argument in a nutshell. I, I, so, I don't see a problem with that myself. I, it seems right. rather so, you know, flawless. Italy is the place where people speak lots of Italian and have yeah. good food. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there's worse places you could put the papacy. So you're saying my answer to this one was a was a, was a little bereft? Well, uh, but maybe just a little bit. You did leave out the business about St. Peter and his martyrdom, and uh, that's kind of the core of the thing. You know, his bones are there, Ray. I was getting, we, to, we, we I a lot was with bones. getting the, to that. The Catholic Church, we, we believe in bones in the bones Catholic things. Church. Bones are a very important thing <laughs> in the Catholic tradition. <laughs> All right, now here's my real question. Okay. I've heard people come down on two sides of this. Do you forgive someone who does not want forgiveness or seek it from you. Okay, so, you know, I'd be interested to know your thoughts as a psychologist on the, the psychological benefits of forgiveness versus the, the moral requirements of forgiveness, right? Now, what I would usually tell people is that, you know, as a Catholic, from a theological grounds, forgiveness is the, the willingness to be reconciled with somebody, right, and to live amicably together, right? To, to seek that one's reciprocal common good and to accept that. Uh, but there are people who are not willing to reciprocally seek your good. Okay. So you can have the disposition, the openness to be in relationship with them on just grounds, 
but you're under no obligation to suffer injustice at their hands. So if somebody has not stopped their bad behavior, if they're still coming after you with a baseball bat, forgiveness does not require you to stand there and get beamed in the head with a baseball bat. Like, you could be willing to be in relationship with them, but unable to because they're still carrying the bat. But you can forgive um, in a disposition. Right. In other words, a guy's coming at me with a ball bat. I'm not going to give him. I'm not going to give him room to do that. But at the same time, I'll pray for the guy's soul, and I'll hope. In sure, fact sure. He comes and, and also, you know, in in moral theology, what's morally relevant is not our emotions, but our will. So I can have the will. I can make the determination of my will that I would be willing to reconcile with this person if such thing was possible, while simultaneously continuing to feel very hurt and aggrieved. And so, you know, people will call me up and say, I have all this anger or all this, you know, rage or all this grief or all this sadness. Have I really forgiven? And my view, and I think I'm grounded in the church's teaching here, is the, the emotional trauma of a relationship is something completely different from that moral relevance of forgiveness. Now, what you do in your business, the psychology, is about how can I help you mitigate the severity of your emotional response? How can I help you live with those emotions or maybe bring them down a little bit? And people get the, psych- the psychological and the moral confused, in my judgment, when it comes to forgiveness. Psychology would never admit this. But it just so happens that a lot of what Jesus said, psychology agrees with. You wrote a book about that. Yes. There, uh, my is, wife bought it, actually, quite recently. I've noticed she does seem smarter. Than, well, than, yeah, yeah, there you go. She's smarter than, than I had remembered. So, given all that... Forgiveness is one of those areas of research in psychology that is overwhelmingly in line right. with what Jesus said. Right. Because you eat yourself alive when you don't forgive. That is true. That be- is true. People think the benefit is to the one forgiven. Much more benefit to the forgiver. Yep. I had a, I had a relative who, who was the most embittered person I've ever known in my entire life. And she died angry and alone because nobody wanted to be around her. You've heard the analogy of refusing to forgive someone is like taking a small teaspoonful of poison every day. Yep. I knew you heard that. That's why. It's true. That is why going from my show, The Doctor Is In, to your show, Call to Communion, is really pretty much uh, moving from Wheel of Fortune to Jeopardy. You know, going from kindergarten to your Ph.D. in a half an hour. Um, well, you know, uh, you got a Ph.D. too, Ray. Permanent head damage. <laughs> now, my friend... Tom he's giving Price, us the 30-second mark. Yeah, he's like, he's get giving lost. Us the 30 second get mark. lost. All right, I got to get out of here. But I do so much appreciate being with you, David. Hey, thanks, Ray. Good All to right, see you. Bye. Thanks for coming. Oh, oh, sorry. Now I'm getting the signal that says keep things going until the music rolls. Yes, exactly. we got to go to a break here in just a second. How much time we got, Mr. Barry? we got about 10 seconds to go. Okay, Ray, we got time for one more punchline if you want one. All right. Quick, well, comedy on the fly. Well, <laughs> I will tell you, I, I so appreciate listening to you because, well, some of those words you use are pretty big. And I go, he knows the meaning of those words. Yeah, you're finally saved by the bell or the music, as it were. Here we go, Ray. Thanks, right, Thanks for bye. coming. We'll see you at the radio conference.
right. Now we can get things started. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. Tom Price here along with Dr. David Andrews. What a great way to begin the show. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, I always like it when Ray's in town. You know, he, he sees a microphone. He feels the need to do about 20 minutes of shtick. So we're lucky we got him out of here when we did. Well, I always like to hear his shtick, so oh, it's good glad stuff. to have Ray around. It's good stuff. Well, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that said, uh, walk softly and carry a big shtick. There you go. Something, something like that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, 833-288-3986. Got started a little bit late. Let's get right to it. We'll begin today, if you don't mind, with Kevin, a first-time caller in Mendota Heights, Minnesota, listening today on YouTube. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, what a pleasure to speak with you both. Um, anyways, I'm calling about some recommendations on how I can have an effective and charitable discussion with uh, about Israel with my evangelical fundamentalist wife and in-laws, you know, especially in current of the current events going on there. Um, you know, they definitely come from the dispensationalist tradition. Uh-huh. And so just, I know that it, the topic comes up and just want to see how you would best approach it in a charitable fashion. You know, I, I brought up, you know, the current nation state of Israel being founded in 1948. Like, you know, that was the United Nations. That wasn't like God establishing it on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. But um, just anyways, just any recommendations you have. Yeah, thanks. Well, you, you, you've already hit on some of the major topics that I would that I would want to emphasize. You know, there's a common belief among dispensational Protestants that the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948 is either the fulfillment or the prelude to the fulfillment of biblical prophecy about the end times. And so uh, they're, they're really invested in what happens over there, and that, that, that can be quite dangerous in that since they think they already know the end of the story— um, they, my judgment and my experience of having lived among uh, dispensationalists in the South and in the Bible Belt is that they don't take a very realistic attitude towards matters of public and international policy, right? If they, they, they just assume, well, God's got it all worked out, the good guys are going to win in the end, so we can go to hell in a handbasket in the meanwhile, you don't have to worry about it. And that's a pretty naive way to, to go about international diplomacy, and, <laughs> and it's insensitive, of course, to, to all of the intricacies of, that, are, that are involved over there. Um, so, you know, there, there, is, there is one sense in which the foundation of Israel in 1948 is uh, deeply related <coughs> to biblical prophecy, and that's because uh, 19th century premillennialists and dispensationalists who strongly believed that God would establish a Jewish homeland and restore uh, the nation of Israel were very involved in the Zionist movement from an early age. And so Christians' support for the foundation of Israel is, is part of the story about why a state was founded to begin with, right? But that's uh, but that's not evidence of biblical prophecy. It's the evidence of people who believe in a particular intape- interpretation of biblical prophecy having a political impact in the world, right? So that, that is the one sense in which it, it's relevant. Um, and, uh, and, you know, when it comes to matters of justice, uh, it, it, we shouldn't have to say this to your, to your Christian relatives, but it's probably worth pointing out that um, there are Christians among the Palestinians, uh, you know there are there are there are Orthodox and Catholic Christians among the Palestinians, some Protestants too, for that matter, and so they are suffering uh, in this war as they have in other in previous wars. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you know the way to approach any question of justice is to is to get down in there and do do the the, the dirty research and find out you know who's who's done what to whom, 
and and what does equity demand? And look, I we all have our political opinions, right? And I, I have mine, and they're fairly strong on this matter. I'm not going to talk about them on the air. Um, and I, you know, I definitely think that that both sides of the conflict have done things that were objectionable. And I think that one, nevertheless, I think one party has the moral upper hand, at least in the present circumstances. Um, but that doesn't mean that I should ignore injustices perpetrated by both sides, and those things need to be open for discussion. And and you shouldn't reduce the conversation to eschatology or you know what what you think is going to happen at the end of the world. Because the fact of the matter is, is even if you're a dispensational Protestant, your track record has been pretty bad so far. Uh, you remember the book, uh, 88 Reasons Why the World Was Going to End in 1988? <laughs> I mean, dispensational Protestantism has predicted the end of the world continually since its founding and set dates and has always been wrong. And yet here we are. And an enormous personal and social harm has been done in consequence. People yeah. emptying their bank accounts and giving money to radio evangelists that you know have been spouting this kind of thing on the air, uh, beggaring themselves and their families. I mean, there's just been a lot of harm done to the world because of this way of approaching uh, political and social questions. It's, it's not consistent with the church's social vision, which is that we're supposed to be salt and light by actually going out there and working for justice in the concrete warp and woof of human culture. Kevin, is that helpful for you? That is very helpful. So thank you so much. Appreciate your call. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- 288-3986, called communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Rita is listening in Kansas City, a first-time caller, listening on the great Catholic radio network. Rita, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Uh, so I wondered why uh, when God is perfect, um, Jesus became flesh. So that's in addition to God and Perfection means that nothing needs to be added. It's fully complete. Uh, Unlike uh, that Jesuit coon, God does not evolve. So how is it that God took on flesh if he was perfect? And my pastor said that's Gnosticism. And when I looked at Gnosticism, um, Bishop Barron was saying that has to do with private religion, like we got the inside track to religion, and then it led me to thinking, well, Jesus pulled the apostles aside and gave them inside tracks, so now I think I'm a mess being demonically attacked by Gnosticism, that Jesus had a private track for people, insider knowledge for people. And okay, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We got several different questions. I need to disentangle them, okay? One of them has to do with the nature of the Incarnation, and the timelessness of God, how that interacts with the with the the temporal matter of Christ's human person. All right, I got a little bit lost in the discussion of Gnosticism because that's a completely different uh, can of worms. So let me let me deal with the incarnational question first, and then I'd like to come back and talk about your Gnosticism business. Okay, so let's just do one at a time. So how does the unchanging um, uh, eternal God interact with the the temporal world in the incarnation? So the Catholic doctrine on this is that God, of course, doesn't change. The divine nature doesn't change. And uh, the Incarnation is not, doesn't, doesn't implicate the divine nature in change. It's not a change in God's substance. It is the assumption of a human nature to the divine nature, such that the person, Jesus, has an unchanging, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent divine nature and a changing, temporal, passable human nature. 
So it was possible for the person Jesus to change because he has a human nature and human nature is passable. It is not impassable. So he could suffer, he could grow, he could die, he could be raised again. All those things uh, are a function of his humanity. And yet he's so closely conjoined to the divinity that when we say that, that Christ was born, Christ lived, Christ died, we would say, God was born, God lived, God died, but not because of any change in his divine nature. It's just that the two natures are so closely conjoined in the person of Christ that what we predicate of the one we can say of the other without, without confusion. That's the language of the Chalcedonian uh, definition. They're, they're, they're combined without confusion, without commingling, without separation. Um, and uh, granted, it's difficult to think about how could the eternal and the temporal coincide, uh, the best we can do is to come up with analogies from human experience. And we do find places in our human experience where we don't see God, but we do see other other eternal, unchanging forms that interact with uh, with, with temporal matter. And all you have to do is think about geometry as an analogy. Hmm. So, I mean, like the, 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 the properties of a triangle don't change. The Pythagorean theorem doesn't change. We find instantiations of those eternal forms all over the place. Right in physical changing matter. Sure, uh, you know Plato saw that a long time ago, and so the interaction of the eternal and the temporal is something that characterizes our rationality and and seems to be the way the world is structured. How that could be applied more directly to the question of the incarnation is a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Now let let's dive into the, the the Gnosticism thing you were you were raising. Uh, so let me give the definition of Gnosticism, and then we'll maybe that'll illumine. If it doesn't, we can come back to you. So Gnosticism is a religious movement that arises in late antiquity, well, no, early antiquity from uh, Second Temple Judaism into the early centuries of the Christian era. It's not, it's not unique to Christianity. There are Jewish forms of Gnosticism and secular pagan forms of Gnosticism as well. Gnosticism is basically the world's first and greatest conspiracy theory. Um, it's the idea that there is a secret to be unveiled uh, that will make sense of uh, our temporal suffering experience and that a certain number of Illuminati uh, are privy to this information and that they can escape whatever problems in the world they experience through this, uh, through this form of knowledge. So, you know, anytime you hear somebody say, um, you know, something like, uh, well, you know, if, if you just grant that, um, you know, everybody in Washington is a lizard person, um, then it, it solves all the problems, all, all the questions you have about why people are so maladaptive up there. Well, if they just grant that they're all lizard people from out of space, it makes sense. So that just answers a me, lot of questions. Just, just grant me that one premise, <laughs> and I know this because some alien came and told me that, right? Oh. Um, you know, that's—but that's, that's uh, but, but, uh, all conspiracy theories work this way. I, I've got some secret lock on the world, and I can give you the, the key that will unlock all this mystery, right? That's, that's the, the basic idea behind conspiracy theories and Gnosticism. If you ever saw— uh, uh, the science fiction movie The Matrix. It's oh, a beautiful yeah. example of a, a form of Gnosticism, right? Mm-hmm. The main character Neo lives in a world that he thinks is real, only come to f- comes to find out later that it's actually all a project- projection by malevolent robots that have kept him literally as a brain in a vat, right? Wow. You know, that's Gnosticism. Um, and uh, in early Christianity, there were Gnostic sects within Christianity that, te- that held that the purpose of Christ's appearance, I won't say incarnation because they didn't think he took on a body, the purpose of Christ's appearance was to reveal to uh, to the elect 
their identity as spiritual beings trapped in, in flesh pots, basically, and that through access to the secret gnosis they could escape the uh, vicissitudes of earthly life and return to their, to their heavenly home. So what about Gnosticism is bothering you? Um, I think you said your pastor may have accused you of holding a Gnostic position. If, I'm, if I didn't misunderstand, how can I help you more with the Gnosticism business? You did a great job, and I will listen and listen to this again when I am hit with it. Um, so I guess if Jesus pulled people aside, then it wasn't the whole essence of his teaching. So, okay, um, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, so pulling people aside is not the definition of Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism is a metaphysical claim about the, the nature of, of uh, the unseen world to the seen world and the passing on of a secret, and by, by access to the secret you unlock the key and you can gain salvation. Now, everybody that has a secret is not a Gnostic. Like, I know what I'm going to get my wife for Christmas. That doesn't make me a Gnostic, right? You know, Christ absolutely had secrets that he unveiled. There's no doubt about that. He says that explicitly, right? In Matthew chapter 13, when the disciples say, why did you teach in parables? He says, well, I teach in parables so that the hoi polloi won't understand, but I reveal to you the secrets of the, myst- of the, of the kingdom of heaven. I unveil to you the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He definitely had initiates. Uh, he had an in-group and an out-group. Having an in-group and an out-group is not Gnosticism. Right, I I joined a an, an ill-fated attempt to join a college fraternity. They had an in-group and an out-group. It's not Gnosticism. They weren't claiming to deliver me the keys of the kingdom in the sense of they were going to give me secret knowledge that was going to attain my salvation and explain all of reality. They were just going to let me into their you know silly boys drinking club. <laughs> right. So not every secret is Gnosticism. Not every in-group out-group is Gnosticism. Uh, but those things are often features of Gnosticism. Hope that's helpful for you, Rita. Thank you so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, maybe you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833-288-3986. Donald is listening in New Jersey on the great domestic church media. Hey there, Donald. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yeah, um, the screener informed me that someone had asked this question recently, like a week or two ago, but I didn't know that, so he left me on. He let me on. Um, I was wondering if Jesus raised himself from the dead under his own power or his heavenly Father's power. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Most of the New Testament passages that speak about the resurrection of Christ say God raised Jesus from the dead. So Romans 8. Uh, 11, Acts 2.24, they just flat out God raised Jesus from the dead. Um, There's one passage of Scripture in John chapter 10, when Christ says, No one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. So that's a little bit in, in, in contrast. It's kind of a distinction from the rest of the New Testament. Uh, why does John say that? Well, I think because a major theme in the in John's gospel is that Jesus is fully God. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that's the emphasis of John is that the resurrection of Christ is he's he's not just a passive recipient; he's an agent in his own in his own resurrection because, as God. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the rest of the New Testament emphasizes God's divine activity, and Peter tells us why in, in a sermon in Acts. He says he speaks about Christ as the Messiah and says God gave proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Right. Um, that the resurrection indicates that divinity was at work, uh, and that vindicates Christ's message in his person. 
Is that helpful for you, Donald? Um, very helpful, and I thank Dr. and you. Thank you so much. Appreciate your call. It is called a communion on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. We are delighted that you're with us. Uh, tomorrow we're going to be uh, doing our program and uh, all of our midday programs from the uh, EWTN radio celebration. It's actually a radio conference for all of our radio affiliates from coast to coast. So uh, all of our uh, midday programs like uh, Women of Grace and Take Two with Jerry and Debbie, this program, Open Line, uh, it's all going to be coming to you from uh, the Hyatt Regency here in town. Uh, right now, we're looking for your phone calls today at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program here on Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get back to the phones in a second here. Let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN Publishing, A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, Catholic Questions that Protestants can't answer by John Martinoni. He highlights the flaws in Protestant teaching using common sense, simple, clear-cut explanations. John lays out the reasons why Protestantism as a whole and in its individual parts is, uh, as uh, Dr. Spock would say, illogical and lacking in both common sense and biblical sense. Should have been Mr. Spock, not Dr. Spock. That was somebody else. Hey, you'll find concise, candid, power-packed arguments from Scripture, history, and just plain rational thinking, along with 30 questions to ask Protestants about why they believe and what they believe. Anyway, it's a great book, A Blue-Collar Answer to Protestantism, now available from EWTN's religious catalog. Go to EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. Interesting question here that came in from YouTube. Uh, this is from CS, who says, Should Catholics celebrate Dia de los Muertos? meaning uh, a replacement for All Saints and Souls Day. I understand culturally there may be a combo for cultural celebration or church feast days. Any thoughts yeah, about that? Yeah, thanks. So my understanding is that Catholics have been celebrating this in Mexico for many, 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 many generations. And yes. the origins are probably pre-Catholic and go all the way back to, you know, to pre-Columbian times. And uh, like a lot of holidays that come into a culture from non-Christian roots or from paganism, there may be elements of celebration that would not be acceptable to a Catholic, but as the Catholic Church always does wherever it goes, it takes things that may have their provenance outside the Church, and it baptizes them, and it turns them into things that are, if not explicitly Christian, at least amenable to Christianity. A good example of this, if you travel around in Italy, for example, you're going to find all kinds of churches that are named Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. Really? Right? Yes, there's several of those. Right? Okay. And, well, that's St. Mary on top of Minerva. And literally what happened is that uh, that there would be pagan shrines to the goddess Minerva, and Catholics would come by and go, out with Minerva, in <laughs> with the Blessed Virgin Mary, and they would build a church on top of the location of a pagan temple, right, you know? Um, and uh, uh, that's what church has always done, right? It'll take musical forms, artistic genres, holidays, celebrations, baptize them and then make them to something Catholic. So the origin of Valentine's Day, this this is kind of legendary, so I'm not 100% sure on the details, but, you know, there was a, uh, a, a Roman festival that was erotic 
and young people would get involved and do the things that young people do. Uh-oh. And uh, we had a pope who said, you know, Christian young people ought not to be doing that kind of thing, so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll keep the date on the calendar, but instead uh, it'll be an opportunity for young people to uh, commemorate their baptismal saint or something like oh, that. We'll, okay. you know, we'll, we'll, you'll take a saint and you'll imitate his virtues for the day, and we'll name it in honor of St. Valentine the Martyr. And so young people said, Great, St. Valentine. And then they kept doing the nonsense that they were yeah. <laughs> involved in, hence the, oh, the, well. the bizarre overtones, you know. Sure. And, uh, and the same thing happened with, with Dia de los Matos in, in Mexico. And, and today, by and large, as I understand, I'm, it's not part of my culture, so I can't speak from personal experience, uh, Mexican Catholics see this as a day to, a, a way of celebrating the Feast of All Saints and All Souls and commemorating the dead and praying for the repose of their souls. And they'll often... Uh, uh, do things in cemeteries, uh, and Catholics are big on cemeteries. We like to pray in cemeteries yes. and pray the repose of souls, and that's all fine. That's all fine. Now, you know, if it if if there were any superstitious rites that involved, uh, you know, um, necromancy or trying to channel the spirits of the dead or anything of that sort, mm-hmm. uh, that would be that would be disallowed. That's not allowable. But okay. you know, just to have the date on the calendar and to commemorate it with with uh, you know, cultural practices is not wrong. CS, thank you so much uh, for your question via YouTube this afternoon. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews in progress here. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We have a couple lines open right now, 833-288-3986. Here's a call that came in overnight on the EWTN listener comment line. My name is Jeff, and I'm from Pensacola. Isn't faith a faulty method to use Accepting things by faith is is teaching people to accept things with no evidence, uh, just because a lot of people believe it or some authority says so. Um, so therefore, faith is a faulty method to use. Your odds of being it leading you to what is truth is really low. I mean, it it could be one in a gazillion. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So as it turns out, the Catholic position is that to accept something without evidence would be irrational and immoral, all right? And there is a, there's a heresy that the Church condemns called fideism, and fideism is the belief or the doctrine that one should accept the doctrines of the faith in spite of the evidence of reason, and that, uh, that faith and reason have, have nothing to do with one another, no concurrence at all, and that one just, uh, uh, you know, asserts the, the faith, you know, in an absurdist kind of void. Um, now, there are Christians that take a fideistic position. Martin Luther, for example, was emphatic that reason le- gave nothing to faith and that the two were utterly contradictory. He said reason is a whore and the worst enemy of faith. Um, modern fundamentalists, in my judgment, are fideistic when they encounter challenges to their, to their religiously-based conception of the world particularly from the domain of natural science, their response is not to go to work to examine the science and see if it can be reconciled with the doctrines of their faith, but to just categorically reject the science. Um, that's fideistic, and, and the Catholic Church says that's dead wrong, and it's immoral because it's a kind of violation of humanity's intrinsic nature as rational. This is the thing that elevates us above the beasts. It's our rationality that makes us uh, to be in God's likeness and image. It's what gives us a moral nature and moral responsibility. So you can't really speak to the deepest uh, levels of a person's humanity and ask them to violate the, the canons of reason in their own life. So we're, we're, not, we're not big fans of that. Um, and the way Catholics conceptualize the faith, the Catholic faith in particular, is that there are motives of credibility. There are things that, that, uh, that tend to substantiate the truth claims of the Catholic faith. There are things that we take on authority, uh, but the authorities are not arbitrary. 
You know, you don't just get to pick any old random authority and pick it because of majority vote. And that was one of the suggestions that you made because a lot of people believe it. No, we, we would never do that. We don't we don't operate by majority vote. Um, so things like the fulfillment of prophecy, uh, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the miracles of the church, uh, the power of uh, tr- the gospel to transform lives, these, while not while not determinative, are, are evidences of the reliability of the Catholic Church and of Christ as a, as a divine authority. And then the act of faith, when you talk about being a way of getting at truth, the act of faith is more for a Catholic than simply affirming a list of propositions. Uh, the Catechism describes it as, as the, the adherence uh, of, of one's total person to God, and our conception of God is that God is complete rationality and utter love, right? So it's, it's the decision to, not just to assent to something, not just to affirm something, but to reorient your entire life in the pursuit of the true and the good. And there's a passage in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that describes dogma, you know, these are the lists of things that Catholics believe, as lights, L-I-G-H-T-S, Right. The purpose of which is to illumine the consciousness, to illumine the conscience, to illumine the human person, to reorient us in the world in a certain direction. And the Catechism also says that the dogmas themselves don't save us. It's the realities to which they point. And so dogma serves, it's more than a truth function. It's a kind of, it has a sort of evocative function in Christian life that's meant to orient me. It's meant to change my mentality, my orientation towards the world. And so, you know, we say one of our dogmas, for example, is that God is love. Now, I will grant to you, that's hard to prove. That's hard to prove that God is love. But if if you orient in the world on the assumption that God is love, you behave differently in the world. And the fruit of that in history has been radical transformation of society for the good. Um, uh, we believe that God is rational. A little bit easier to prove. Uh, but if you orient in the world like God is rational, then what you get, end up with is something like the scientific revolution of the 17th century, mm. which you, you, can, you can directly relate to developments in Catholic theology in the 14th and 15th centuries. Right? It's, it's the belief in a rational, ordered universe governed by a law-giving God um, that uh, that that leads directly to the mindset that makes the scientific revolution possible in the 17th century. Thank you so much for your phone call. It is called communion here on EWTN. Still a couple of lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. This weekend, you can join us for Mother Angelica Answering the Call. That wonderful program comes up for you Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Eastern. This week, Mother discusses, number one, prayer with a grateful heart, number two, life in heaven, and number three, fascinating, what happens if someone does not follow their vocation? What a great program this is. Mother Angelica answering the call, a timeless show on EWTN Radio, an exclusive for us, Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Eastern, again, only on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now for Mark in Houston, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Mark. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, This is a question for Dr. Anders. Um, One of the things that yeah, having been a Protestant has come back to the Church, is, as we know, um, there are some sp- very specific points 
that Protestants like to attack Catholics with, and I know you've done some debates, and going going into a den of lions in a week or so, unfortunately, and I, I won't argue with people, that's fruitless, because most of them come from a background of being brainwashed at Protestant seminaries and preachers, but my question for you, Dr. Anders, is, and having read Scott Hahn and some other things, is how do they come at you? When you debate with them, what are the two or three low-hanging or even high-hanging fruit things that they have a tendency to? Because I, I do a lot of public speaking, and I like to do a lot of preparation. Sure, so, sure. And I, I really want to, because you're an expert, for lack of a better word, and uh, these are friends of mine, and these are really good people. I mean, I mean, really good people. Yeah, I got okay. the question. So let me give you, a, let me tell you a story. I, um, there's a wonderful Catholic family in Birmingham that I know, they're great folks, um, and uh, they had a neighbor that was a Baptist, and the Baptist was coming over and hammering on them all the time. And, uh, and somehow or another, the conversation turned to the canon of the Bible and to the deuterocanonical text, those seven books that Catholics have and Protestants don't. And, uh, and they, they wanted to bring their pastor by to hammer on these Catholics about the, the Deuterocanon. And, uh, and so they, they called me up and they said, would you, um, would you come down and have dinner with us and this, this neighbor and his pastor? And I said, yeah, but, you know, I'd, I don't really want to have a theological slugfest. And, you know, they bring their ringer and you bring your ringer and we <laughs> duke it out. You know, that's not—let's just have a nice dinner. Oh, yeah, fine, fine. Well, it won't be a big theological slugfest. It'll just be a friendly conversation. So we go to dinner. We eat dinner, we have dessert, then they clear the table, and then the Baptist pastor reaches under the table and he pulls out a manuscript. Thunk! Uh-oh. F- puts it down on the table. Turns out the guy has a Ph.D. in patristics, right? And it's like you can see him kind of lick his finger, turn to page one, you know, hold up his hand, and he begins, you know, and he yeah. starts launching into this, uh, to this long tirade, and he's quoting church fathers, and he's quoting church councils, and he's quoting manuscripts, and I mean, I have to admit, the guy was a decent historian, and he, he knew the facts of the All thing right. pretty well. And he's trying to build a case for why the Deuterocanon doesn't belong in the, in the Old Testament. And uh, look, I'm a Reformationist. I, I mean, I, I know some patristics, but I, my specialty is in late medieval and early modern Catholic and Protestant thought, so this is his field, not mine. Um, and I, I listened to his whole presentation. I took a lot of notes. And he gets done, and he puts his pen down, kind of looks at me, you know, crosses his arms with a satisfied look on his face. And, um, and, uh, and I say, okay, well, I, you know, before we get really into this, I have a question for you. He says, what's that? I said, do you regard the canon of the Bible, that is to say the list of biblical books, as an article of faith? He said, what do you mean? I said, you know, well, an article of faith is something that's given to us by divine revelation that we have to believe. Is it an article of faith? Or is it, does it have some lesser status in, in Christian religion? And he thought about it for a minute. And to his credit, he said, well, I guess it must be an article of faith, because otherwise we wouldn't have certainty in our act of faith when we profess things based on sacred scripture. Right, right. I said, great. If it's an article of faith, what divine authority revealed it? Now, notice what I did. All he talked about was this father quoting this book, that father quoting that book. He was trying to show that there was dispute in early Christianity about the status of these books to cast doubt on them. I undercut all of that scholarship. I didn't engage him at what he was an expert in. I took, I took the question to a higher level, you know, to first principles. How do you kn- in principle, how do you know what the canon is? Do you know because you've exhaustively read every church father and you've, you've tallied up the list of fathers that, 
that agreed with the Deuterocanon and the list of fathers that disagreed, and you try to weigh one against the other. Is that the way we know what the canon is? That that's just that's just to try to establish a Christian doctrine based on the weight of human opinion, even if they're the fathers of the church. Is that how we know what Christian doctrine is? You do a vote from antiquity, or do we have Christian doctrine because God has revealed it? That's what the question was meant to derive, right? To, to emphasize. He hadn't thought about it, you know, and he kind of went, oh, bit, 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 you know. And, uh, and my position as a Catholic is that God reveals the contents of the canon, right? And therefore, we can have certainty in our active faith. If sure. God hasn't revealed it, then we do not know what the canon is. Now, to his credit, the, the Reformed Presbyterian scholar R.C. Sproul, now deceased, realized this and bit the bullet and publicly said, we don't have an infallible canon. We don't, we don't have infallible certainty about the list of biblical books, which to me makes absolute mincemeat of his attempt to cite them as authorities. Because mm-hmm. right? once you admit that, then you, then you cast the, the canonical status of every book of the Bible into question. You can't have your cake and eat it too if you admit, if you admit that you don't have a list of infallible books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you another story. Um, I had a mentor in the Catholic faith, a priest named Lambert Greenan. He's dead now, died at 101. He was an Irish Dominican. He got invited one time to dinner uh, with a Lutheran scholar who was considered at the time to be one of the leading experts in the world on Luther's doctrine of justification. And, uh, and so he agrees to go to dinner with the guy. Same thing. They go to dinner, push away the dessert. Here comes the guy with his manuscript, opens it up, and he, he jumps in. And uh, he says, I want to talk about justification. And uh, Lambert, who was a bit cheeky, said, well, you might, I think, would you know something about it then? You know, and this is kind of an insult because <laughs> the guy's just been introduced to him as one of the world leading experts in sure. justification. And so the guy says, well, you know, I take it as given that as, you know, you're a Catholic, I'm a Protestant, that we both agree that the Bible is the word of God. And Lambert said, no, I, I don't agree at all. I totally disagree unless you can prove it to me. First, you prove to me that the Bible is the word of God. Then we'll talk about what it means. The guy got up and walked away from the table. Couldn't take it. Got up and walked away from the table. Wow. All right. And uh, so my point is that it often, in dialogue with a Protestant, they will want to argue with you about biblical exegesis. Or, you know, in my case, patristic exegesis. They'll want to get down into texts and talk about what they mean. Mm. And that's fine. We can have that conversation. But that's kind of a waste of time, in my judgment. Right? The, the, the substantive question is, before we can debate the meaning of a text, we need to establish why the text is important and how it's important and how you know. So the, the only question that Protestants and Catholics should ever discuss, really, if they're running to deal with first principles, is how do you know the content of, of biblical, of, of, of not biblical revelation, how do you know the content of Christian revelation? How do you know the content of the Christian faith? That is the, that is the question. And is it by the Bible alone? And, of course, you know, my position on this is that there is there is zero evidence that God revealed that to be the source of Christian doctrine. That is the assumption of every Protestant. You go to the Bible to, to, to discern Christian doctrine by exegeting it out of the text. But God nowhere says to do that. There's nothing in divine revelation that sets up the Bible as the rule of faith. In fact, Christ says the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, attempts to do that have been entirely abortive. So the entire history of Protestantism is proof positive that the, that the thesis doesn't work. 
theory doesn't work. There is no certainty in Protestant's act of faith based on the Bible alone. Uh, witness the 50,000 Christian denominations that radically disagree on the meaning of the Bible, right? And they can't even agree on what they should disagree about. What I mean by that is, so a lot of times Protestants will say, well, you know, we can disagree about minor things, but, you know, we, we agree on the essentials. Okay, what are the essentials? And then they give you a list of what they consider to be the essentials. And you say, okay, great. How'd you How do you know these are the essentials? And they'll give you some completely ad hoc criterion like, oh, well, they're the ones that have to do with salvation. Duh, that's question begging. <laughs> How do you know they're the ones that have to do with salvation? Yeah. I'll give you an example. In 1541, Calvin wrote a book called A Little Treatise on the Lord's Supper. John Calvin, the Protestant theologian. And he said, uh, uh, you know, the Protestant church was really racked over the question of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. And Calvin says, it is, um, you know, we really have to have clarity on this issue. Tant nécessaire au salut, he wrote, so necessary for salvation. So in his 1541, the Protestant world considered the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist, getting the doctrine right on that, was a matter essential for salvation. No evangelical Protestant today would say that. In other words, their list of essentials has changed. Mm -hmm. So there are just so many problems with the, with the sole scripture of thesis. So that's, that's really the only thing you have to talk about. Yeah. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for your call. Here is Tabitha now in um, Alaska. I think uh, AK, what is Alaska? I think that is it. Uh, listening on Roku. Tabitha, what's on your mind today? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I'm from Arkansas. Arkansas, very it's good. AR. <laughs> Got it. Okay, thank you, Tabitha. What's on your mind today? Um, yes. John 20, 17 says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's Jesus speaking. And he said, and he calls God the Father his God. Yep. He is God, and he calls God the so is God the Father, Jesus is God as well? Okay, thanks. appreciate the question. Here's the Catholic position. The paternity of the Father, you know, the, the fatherhood of the Father, if you will, is not something that comes into being with the creation of the world or the incarnation of Christ. God is eternally Father. But the world's not eternal. The humanity of Christ is not eternal. So if God's eternally Father, of whom is he the Father? Because you can't have a Father without a Son. Mm. Now here's a really interesting thing. The Sonship of Christ, according to the Catholic faith, it's not something that, it's not a status that he assumed at the Incarnation. The Sonship of Christ is an eternal Sonship. There is eternally a Father, and there is eternally a Son. And they are connected through the filial love of the Holy Spirit. So the triune nature of God is an unchanging eternal reality. The second person of the Trinity, whom we call the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, we say in the Nicene Creed, assumes a temporal human nature in the incarnation through the birth of Jesus Christ, the, the, the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. And so... The, the person Jesus, who is both divine and human, um, has a relationship to the Father that is both eternal and temporal. So the, 
the, the human person called Jesus was a faithful child of Israel, a son of Abraham, who participated in the rites and ceremonies and religious traditions of the nation of Israel and related to God as a father. As does the divine uh, nature of the incarnate word, who is eternally related to the father in this filial, paternal relationship. Tabitha, thanks so much for your call. We have just enough time for a call from Mel in Detroit, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Mel, we just have about a minute and a half. What's on your mind today, sir? Oh, my gosh, a fast thing. Well, um, about the war in Gaza, um, politically, it seems like it's not a good idea to take a stand. But what can we as people of faith and religious leaders do to help? Um, pray, you know, encourage the peace. Yeah, right. Thank you. Well, obviously, if I had the solution to the Middle East peace process, I I wouldn't be on this radio network. <laughs> you know, I would, I'd be working in diplomacy and uh, you know the State Department somewhere, yeah, right? Yeah, that's way above my pay grade to give you the solution to a problem that the brightest people in the world haven't been able to solve for for seventy years, right? Um, but you know, at the bare minimum, uh, it's really important, in my judgment, that that we should not let ideology sway us. And we, you have to look at the situation with the the real human beings. Ideology ignores people, right? It 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 sets up issues into camps, and uh, tends to view you know one side is 100% right and the other side is absolutely wrong. And uh, we have to remember the human people involved. And that regardless of your ideology, and regardless of the culture that you live in, and regardless of what the people around you may be doing in that culture, and some of them may be doing idiotic things, there's a real human cost to war. And, and, uh, and the church and the world can't forget the human cost of war on both sides, and needs to work to, to mitigate and minimize uh, the, uh, uh, the, the real cost to human beings, uh, to children, to women, to families. Uh, to, to, to culture, economies, civilizations. War is always the last option. Yeah, that cost is very dear, isn't it? Yep. Wow. Mel, thank you so much uh, for your call. I'm glad we could get you in there at the last moment. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for the live broadcast, 11 p.m. Eastern for the Encore, which is 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Look for the word podcast, click that, and you are good to go. Until we meet again, which is hopefully tomorrow from the... uh, 2023 Catholic Radio Conference. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you then. Have a great day and God bless.